Our sermon passage this morning comes from Mark 9, beginning in uh, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he would not have anyone know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they were silent. For on the way they had discussed with one another who was the greatest. And he sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you this morning, dependent on your word. More than anything else, Lord, show us Christ, your son, more clearly, and form us into his image so that we would love what he loves and will what he wills. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. When I was in high school, a few of us uh, band geeks would go to Ellensburg for solo competitions. So it was my senior year, and the only other horn player in Yakima County had already graduated. Now, him and I were pretty good friends, um, but he was also my only real rival, I would say, uh, the year before. So my junior year, he got first, and I got second, naturally. Well, this year was my year to shine. With my rival out of the picture, the title of first place was pretty much in the bag for me. But I found myself slacking in my practicing. I'd stopped really caring about the musical excellence, and I was only thinking in terms of the status that comes with winning first place, which, when you put it in perspective, probably shouldn't have meant that much when I thought that I was going to be the only one competing. Um, but regardless, to my surprise, I was not the only horn player competing that year. There were new contenders that I was ignorant of. So I performed my piece decently, and then I sat back and I, I watched the other people perform, and they were pretty good. At the end of the day, I think I ended up placing third or fourth, um, which probably meant last place when you're a horn player in Yakima County, because there's not very many of us. But yeah, I wasn't even second alternate to state. And I was disappointed, but the shock didn't really last long. Uh, the lesson was obvious, and it was hard learned. It's easy for us humans to get fixated on status or social standing. We look to ourselves for this sense of greatness. We're prideful. We judge ourselves to be more important than we really are. Maybe you want to be the smartest one in the room, or the most interesting, or the funniest, or the best looking. Maybe you want to be the most pious, subtly, of course. I wanted to be the best horn player. We're also fearful. 
Maybe you don't have to be the smartest or the best looking, but you just need to make sure that you're not the dumbest or the worst looking. You just don't want to be the last of all. As long as we aren't last, we feel justified in ourselves. Status also comes with comfort, which is something that I think is pretty difficult for us to give up for the sake of the other. Whatever our fixation is, ever since the fall, we have this tendency to desire status or social standing. The disciples got caught up in discussing who is the greatest, and Jesus used this opportunity to teach them an important lesson about true greatness. And he doesn't just teach them a lesson, right? He's teaching this eternal truth about how the universe under God's reign has always worked. So it's true for us today. It's true for the church. In fact, I would say that it's true for all people of all times and places. It's probably true for angels. This is what God is telling the world in Jesus, that true greatness is not about status, but service. And this is my sermon this morning, that true greatness is not about status, but service. And there are two ways that Jesus shows us how we must pursue true greatness. And he states them very plainly here. First, we must be last of all. And second, we must be servant of all. So first, because true greatness is not about status, we should be last of all. So let's start here in verse 33. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. We're just arriving to Capernaum after a few hours of walking on the way. Jesus is, he's maybe like a few yards ahead of us. He's probably doing some thinking, probably doing some praying. He's just finished his public ministry in and around Galilee, and now his face is set on Jerusalem, where he intends to die. But what are we thinking about? Not long before this, at the end of chapter 8, it was revealed to Peter that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, the soon-to-be-conquering king. This guy that we're following, he's the greatest. He's the greatest. Just try to find someone greater than Jesus. Hey, by the way, do you think that people are going to be looking at us when we come into Jerusalem with Jesus, into the big city? Do you think they're going to know our names? You know, this whole kingdom thing is going to happen sooner than we probably think, and the Jews are going to need some leadership. What do you think my title should be? Yeah, we'll get to your title in a second, but what do you think my rank should be? You know, how are we going to divvy this whole thing up? You see, the disciples realized that they had status to gain by being associated with the Messiah, the most famous man in all of Israel. And when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they discussed with one another who was the greatest. They were silent. They were embarrassed. Just a simple question made them realize how foolish they were to be talking about who is the greatest. You know, sometimes what seems reasonable when we forget about Jesus, suddenly we realize it's actually meaningless when we're in his presence. So what does Jesus do? Verse 35, and he sat down. He sits down. A different leader might have contributed his own resume to um, display his greatness and just contribute to the argument. 
A different leader might have rebuked them, or worse, for suggesting that they might be greater than himself. But not Jesus. Jesus sits down. We're looking down at Jesus. He's looking up at us, the fools. He's so gentle. Now, this is the typical posture of Jewish teachers during the day, and so we know that Jesus has a lesson to teach. And he sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, oddly enough, Jesus doesn't say that we should not pursue greatness. Something about the pursuit of greatness is actually a good thing. But he wants us to aim for true greatness. You know, I wouldn't be wrong to want my horn solo to be great, but I was wrong to desire the status of first place at the expense of a truly great musical performance. But Jesus is saying that we're asking the wrong question when we ask which of us is the greatest. First, because Jesus is the greatest, of course, but secondly, because true greatness is not about status. The greatness of the world is one, one with cunning and charm and self-serving power. The greatness of the world brings status and comfort, lots of friends, lots of things, no suffering. But Jesus says that the greatness of the world is a farce. It's, it's not true. Why? Because we are only as great as we reflect the character of God, the God who emptied himself for our salvation. True greatness means being last of all. So what does this mean? Well, Jesus shows us. He takes a little toddler and he puts her in the midst of us. He picks her up in his arms and her sticky fingers are, you know, tugging at his beard as he says, whoever welcomes one such child in my name or for love of me welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not only me, but him who sent me. So why a little kid? Well, kids in their day did not have status, and nor were they concerned about status because they're little kids. But welcoming people in the first century was a custom that everybody was familiar with, and it was rather transactional in nature. So you would be fortunate to welcome a noble or a wealthy family member into your home because they would be obliged to return you a favor, be it material or social. But little kids, they have no wealth, they have no status. If you welcome them in, they can't pay you back. So when Jesus says one such child, I think he's talking about all people who don't have this status, who can't pay you back. The poor, the powerless, the outcast. Who comes to mind when you think about those in your life who lack this kind of status? And we aren't just thinking about Christians here. The orphan and the widow, the children, of course, and the elderly, the racialized minority, the sexual minority, the drug addict. Now, some of the people I just listed might stand out to you particularly as sinners. And most of us here, I think, sin in such ways that we don't quite have the social consequences of, say, a person who's addicted to drugs. I don't lose social status when I secretly lie to my parents or cut corners at work 
or look at someone's spouse in an objectifying way. So can we see that? Can we at least recognize that and in light of that refuse to judge people as you know, lazier or somehow less deserving than us? Because these people are made in the image of God. Christian or not, and here Jesus identifies with the last of all such that to welcome such a person is to welcome Jesus, is to welcome God. Dorothy Day said that those who cannot see Christ and the poor are atheists indeed. If you want to see the face of God, look to the poor. Theirs is the kingdom, after all. Jesus is not ashamed to identify with them. Rather, it is the pleasure of his heart to say that to welcome one such child is to welcome him. And he says, you know, again in Matthew 25, that whoever, however we treat the hungry or the stranger, the imprisoned, that's how we treat Jesus. What a mystery. Jesus, the one that we saw transfigured on the mountain, he shows us that he is the greatest. He's also the last of all. I dwell in the high and holy place, says the Lord, and also with him who is of a contrite and humble spirit. This is the kingdom of God. What a mystery. Now, if you instinctively identify with the last of all, with the poor and the outcast, the gospel of Jesus is good news for you. He lives to bring you into his midst, to take you up into his arms, the Father's arms. Because the Father loves the world. He loves you, and that's why he sent his Son. Anyone who repents and believes in him has eternal life and a family in the Father's house. So what can we do? Well, Jesus shows us two ways, I think, that we can share in his greatness. First, he takes the child and he puts her in the midst of the disciples. So what's an area of your life where you can make room to bring someone into your midst uh, who can't pay you back? How as a church, as a body of disciples, can we make room for the outsiders and the outcasts? Secondly, Jesus takes the child up into his arms. The church is not where outsiders come to be condemned by Christians, but rather the church is where outsiders come and are surprised with a loving embrace. Who do you know that would be served by such a simple expression of love? And yeah, they might have sticky hands, metaphorically, and ruin your beard or your hair, but for the love of Jesus, you don't care. Lastly, do we use our authority at work or our privilege in society to promote our own comfort or to serve others? I hope that you can see that in order to welcome the last of all, we often must assume the posture of a servant. Which brings us to our second and final point. That true greatness is about service. And therefore, we should be servant of all. Again, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. We should be servant of all. Later in Mark, Jesus says that the Son of Man came not to, serve, uh, came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So Jesus is the servant of all. And he shows us the kind of servant he is in verse 31. The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Jesus is the suffering servant. He's the self-sacrificing servant. Mark is saying that Jesus is the one that Isaiah was talking about when he said, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The cross is the ultimate act of service to humanity. On the cross, the cup of God's wrath towards sin was drained to the dregs in the body of our Lord. And it's because of this self-sacrificial love, the love of God, that we are counted righteous and restored to communion with God. The cross is where we learn what it means to be a servant. Now, often in our tradition, broadly reformed, we use Isaiah 53 to emphasize the substitutionary nature of Christ's atonement. But interestingly enough, Peter uses this passage with a different thrust. So this is 1 Peter 2.21, um, riffing off of Isaiah 53. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Here it is, leaving you an example. The cross is an example for us, that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no guile was found on his lips. When he was reviled, he did not revile it in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten. But he trusted him who judges justly. Jesus indeed t died to save us from the penalty of sin. But Jesus also died to set for us an example, to set a path for us to follow of how to live in a world that's still poisoned by sin and the devil. And that path is service and it's suffering. It's self-sacrifice. In a word, it's love. In a fallen world, the path of obedience is this self-sacrificial love. And we all know how burdensome this life can be. Some of us might feel that there's not a lot of self left to sacrifice. But the good news is that Jesus went before us and God vindicated him in his resurrection. God doesn't waste our suffering, he redeems it. It says after three days he will rise. Resurrection comes, and not just at the end, but in the middle too. We partake in this resurrection even now. Do you believe it? Okay, another band story. In college, our wind symphony director, his name is Dr. Richard Strauch, amazing man and musician. He would often tell us, do you know why we have the ladies wear black and uh, the men wear tuxes? So every performance, whether at the magnificent Fox Theater in downtown Spokane or some you know, dingy high school gymnasium, we always came ready to play in our black jackets and our little black bow ties and those you know, black stud things that you replace your buttons with. He says, do you know why we wear tuxes? It's not because classical music is fancy or because 
it's you know elite. No, it's because this is the uniform of the servant. Kind of like a butler. We're there to serve the audience, to serve the composer, to serve each other, and ultimately we're there to serve God. And it's only when we assume the posture of servants that true excellence, true greatness, is made of our music. That's what he said. And it's the same way in God's kingdom. You know, the greatest figures in the Bible, Moses, David, ultimately Jesus, they were all called servants of God. Brothers and sisters, we are servants too. Servants are kind. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kindly to everyone. Servants are listeners. When someone has something to say, we respond like Samuel, speak, for your servant is listening. I think this is especially relevant when it comes to people who think differently from us, whether it's culturally or politically. You know, we aren't suspicious of their motives, but we listen with genuine interest and concern. Servants are flexible, open to following the lead of the Spirit. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Servants know the difference between a distraction and a holy interruption. Jesus never saw people as a distraction. He always moved towards people. Of course, that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't go, you know, up the mountain by himself to pray in the early hours of the morning. But he never said, ah, I'm too busy to be bothered right now. Servants allow themselves to be interrupted. Now, we will never be the perfect servant, but we aren't asked to be the perfect servant. We're asked to follow Jesus, the true servant, who goes before us and promises to be with us. Jesus said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. True greatness is not about status, but service. We do not seek our own honor, but the Lord honors his servants. What a beautiful promise. May we be a church eager to serve the Lord in humility, to serve each other in love, and to join Christ in serving humanity. May we be a church who does not use our privilege and freedom as opportunities for the flesh, but in service and love to our neighbors. And may we always rest in the freedom and salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who came to serve us by giving his life for our ransom. Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, the truly great one, we worship you with humble hearts. In your son, you took the form of a servant and emptied yourself for our sake. Give us grace now to follow you. Give us humility, Lord, to love those whom you love for the sake of your kingdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Now let us stand and respond to God's word by speaking back to him, saying, I believe.